Hi, I'm Victor Milligan. And I'm Jennifer Isabella. Your co-host for Forrester's podcast, What It Means, we're exploring the major changes in the market influencing executive priorities. And on the phone with us today is Shar Van Boskirk, VP and Principal Analyst at Forrester, to discuss the changing shape of marketing. Welcome, Shar. Hi, Victor. Thanks very much. So, Shar, I want to start at the very beginning of the story. Why are such changes expected in marketing, both in the B2C and B2B spaces? Well, Victor, I think there are a number of factors that we could talk about here. I think the biggest is that companies overall are struggling to find their right competitive position. And as they are working to understand new disruptors that are coming into their space, new customer expectations, um, it's leaving them realizing that whatever they've been doing and, and the role of marketing in that is inadequate. And so I think it's creating a, a change across the company. Um, functions around the organization, not just the marketing team, are needing to retool. And so we are thinking uh, in my role, I, I work with the CMO, we're thinking about what does the new role of marketing need to be in this dynamic where there's competition coming from unexpected places, there's extremely entitled customers demanding that they have their needs met uh, immediately, um, the company itself is working to create more agile products, and marketing has to play a different role than just being the creative shop or the promotions team or the sales enablement group. Yeah, it's funny you said that because if you look at different industries, you're looking at, at retail really being turned on its head based upon changing consumer behaviors and the influence of Amazon. Then you look at banking that's being affected by sort of an open ecosystem environment that's different than sort of banks operating as single entities. If you look at automotive, it's even you know, more jarring going forward, which is the value chain fundamentally changes from an ownership culture to almost mobility of a service. And so I, I, I was kind of compelled by your comment about the right competitive position because it's just not clear what a company's purpose will be going forward. And they're going to have to take a look at that basic idea. Yeah, and I think historically, the thing that has been the primary differentiator has been the, the product, or it has been the business model of getting that product to the customer. And today, it's not that those things don't matter. Good product quality matters a lot, and smart distribution matters a lot. But today, those are very easy to duplicate. So the idea of just having the better car or the better, um, I was talking to a, a um an alcohol and spirits company, and they were saying that even just the better, you can't have the better spirit anymore or the better packaging for it, that that today, you know, P. Diddy has a vodka brand. <laughs> so it's like that stuff isn't good enough. So there, then all of a sudden the company is having to think a lot about, well, what is the experience through which someone consumes our product? And could we make that differentiated? Or what is the post-sales experience that somebody enjoys from us that we create that's the way that they're going to use our product to meet their needs? And could we differentiate on that? And so all of a sudden the stuff that companies have, have kind of hung their hat on in the past isn't enough to create a real differentiation anymore. And that remit is now under the CMO, that experience, not just the advertising of that spirit or alcohol brand, as an example. 
Yes. So, so bringing it back to the CMO, I think there's two things that uh, are in this conversation that are really impactful on the marketing organization. So the first is that um, customer experience is a bigger deal than it's ever been before. And customer experience, just for customer experience sake, doesn't work. It's not like just make the customer happy and you win. This is like make the customer happy in a way that ties back to your brand value and what the company believes is its core. And that's that's what marketing has owned. Marketing has always owned that brand piece and today is responsible for balancing the customer experience with the brand piece. And then the second thing is that this this thing around understanding our customer is also the thing that marketing should be the best at. And I say should be the best at because at some companies, marketing isn't the best at that today, but it should be the thing that marketing is really good for. They are the entity that is the closest to the customer. They should be the entity that can take what they know about the customer and sort of distribute it, translate it, disseminate it around to the rest of the business. There's a, there's a lot that you can learn from high school. And one of them is, <laughs> is, is dating. And, and I always sort of take marketing and dating together. Marketing tends to default down to, let me talk about me. And it tends not to default down, let me understand you. And I think that truism exists in the way that marketing is operated. Going back to your point, which is it really understands its business model and it really understands its products. But what it doesn't really understand is ultimately the consumer or customer that's experiencing that, how they feel and what they and how they react to it. Motivations. Yeah, that's been a lost ingredient, which is funny because that's really the point of origin of marketing. Well, it hasn't been uh, the purpose of the marketing function. So if we kind of if we kind of look in arrears at what marketing has been for, for the last, let's say, 30 years, it has really been to pitch product. You know, somebody somewhere makes a product and then hands it to the marketing team, and the marketing team is supposed to go make people want to buy it. In this environment, that doesn't work, and and the pivot of the marketing organization is not um, my step in the process is make people want to buy this thing. The, the marketing function has to be the entity that figures out what do our customers want? What is the thing that they need in their world to fill their lives, to make them happy, to solve a problem, to help them get a job promotion, to connect them with community? Like what are these needs that our, our customers have? And then how can we as a business meet those needs? And that might be by creating certain products. That might be by delivering the same old products in a new and different way. That might be by servicing the delivery of those products in some way that helps me get more usefulness out of it. And we're saying that marketing, marketing is catalyzing that set of decisions, that set of strategies, um, which I think is pivoting back to your thing about meeting the, meeting the customer, understanding the customer, um, this sort of um, balance that happens in a relationship is I'm listening to you and I'm giving back to you based on what I've heard rather than just I'm pushing anything I want to tell you about how great I am your way. That, that tends to not be a healthy relationship. I want to amplify what you said in terms of the word customer, because in many cases, marketing likes scale. It likes to do one thing, apply many. And part of the output of scale is segmentation. What the market's sort of demanding now is that there's a segment of one 
that's not really operating at scale. That's operating at the individual and almost moment level. How is marketing kind of making that pivot from scale to individual to a human being? Yes. Yeah, so this is this is where we can start talking about technology and automation and the role of support from technology at enabling these new sets of processes. So it is true that historically it has been impossible to get to a place where you could have a real one-to-one conversation. And you're right that what we're talking about isn't even one-to-one anymore. It's sort of one-to-specific moment. Like right now I have a need that will expire and I won't have that same need at 4 o'clock this afternoon. Um, But this is where technology and the ability to process through huge volumes of data can make this sort of stuff happen. Now, I'm a little bit of a pragmatist. I, I, I actually think there's a point of diminishing returns. I, I don't think every company out there has to take every single moment that one of their customers has and create a, a singular communication for that moment. I think there's a point at which that amount of effort doesn't end up paying off, and there's also a point at which it's not helpful to the customer. So I think the marketer strategy becomes figuring out where are the key moments, the key inflection points in a, in a purchase decision, or the key moments of friction in a brand relationship, and then using technology to identify when a customer is in that moment and also use technology to create a communication or an experience that resolves the need at that particular moment. Right. And, and we visited this dynamic in several of our podcasts, which is the irony that the way to become more human is to ramp up on technology. But it also tells us a lot about the future marketing team, which is it's going to be less about humans understanding humans and more about people mastering technology so that they can interpret data that represents humans and their ambitions or whatever their, you know, their aspirations are. I mean, that's a reshaping of who is the marketer and what, what they're doing. I'm seeing lots of organizations uh, working very deliberately to create an org model of the future. And I think that this is what they're trying to figure out, not just um, what is the ideal skill set of the marketer of the future. I think that's a very basic question that everyone has started to think about because there's this need for more data science in the world. Um, I think this is about how do I create an ecosystem where I've pieced together the right chemistry of of individuals that collectively make magic happen. Um, And so I'm starting to see companies do things like hire almost like a, a consulting sort of model where they've hired a bench of folks but they piece together pop-up teams based on the projects that they have from week to week. And they're doing that to figure out how to keep things fast and agile and new and fresh and inspire innovation so that they're never structuring in a way that lets people get complacent or comfortable or habitual in the way that they work. They're kind of mixing it up by always putting different personalities together. Um, I'm also seeing teams that deliberately have a competitive positioning against a sister team. So like having the e-commerce team and the digital marketing team be deliberately independent and compete with each other. Now, that's a model that wouldn't work for everyone, but they're trying to do it for the same reason, to sort of foster this energy and to try to get people to um, outthink, outcreate whatever they did yesterday, to try to continue to push um, what the human contribution is in this uh, in this climate where the the automation is becoming more powerful. 
I want to go back to one of the points you made, which is sort of the collective teams and do a from two, which is marketing organizations were primarily, not always, but primarily hierarchical. And what that meant is like talent sat with like talents and they got used to working with people who are like them with the same skills, the same intellect, the same priorities. You're talking about something different. You're talking about, if I think of it from an AI design perspective, that you're going to need an anthropologist that really allows the human to be expressed in the AI, someone who does experience design, someone who understands the technology and the code. I mean, you're talking about heterogeneous teams that are not like each other, and they're doing it on a pop-up basis. So how is that working in terms of being able to be that dynamic and heterogeneous at the same moment? Well, I think... To be honest, it doesn't work for every company. There has to be, um, first of all, a strategic vision of what are you trying to create, not from an organizational perspective, but from a company perspective. What, what are we trying to, what's our thing that we're trying to solve? And then, based on that, what, what do we need to structure into in order to make that happen? So it would be like, um, if I'm trying to build a car, what do, how do I make that happen, which might be very different from how do I um, assemble components that could go into a car, but we're not actually making the, the, end, um, the same end product. So the idea is that the organizational structure should match the strategic vision of what you're trying to do. Um, so in this particular case, it was Visa North America that did it. Their strategic vision was we work with small business merchants, we want to continually come up with new ways for them to prefer to use the Visa card to another credit card provider. And we believe in order to do that, we have to constantly be new and constantly be fresh, which is the whole reason that they came up with these pop-up teams. Now, I think what you're describing is even taking that one step farther where you are integrating perhaps not just human resources, but you're also considering, well, what role will the technology play? What role will our agency partner play? What role will uh, a chatbot or a robot play? Um, that model, I think, makes a lot of sense, too, where you're sort of doing an optimization of your organizational structure to figure out in which conditions do all of these assets actually work best together. Um, that's a little bit out there. You know, I don't have an example of a company that is thinking along those lines today, but there's this huge question around what do we use technology for versus what do we use our talent for and how much should we pay for each? And I think that it's that question that's going to lead to the type of answer that you're describing. Yeah, I guess one of the point of reference is, is even in my little neck of the woods here, you'll be in a meeting at nine o'clock with design type considerations. And you'll talk about the emotional attachment associated with some visual, whatever it might be. And then at 10 o'clock, you have your meeting with your data team. And you're talking about the specific formatting questions or how the data lake actually works or how to understand how the federation normalization is going to work. I mean, these are very different nouns and verbs that people use. And often the, the intimidation of learning is actually not the concept, but the language. I think that's true. I think um, I think every company is trying to figure out what that means for them. So I've talked to some companies that are deliberately hiring generalists. We want a group of people who all know the same basic bench of skills. 
I've talked to other companies that are deliberately hiring specialists. We want people who are good at this thing or that thing or speak this language or use those numbers. And we're going to assemble uh, a, a, a group of one of each of those into our marketing team. And I, I think that the the, the way I would go about this is I would sort of think about, well, what am I trying to become? What are the skills that I need in order to become that? And then is it is it culturally right for me to manage those skills as individual people? So you've got a specialist, specialist A, B, C, D, E. Or can I better manage a group of people where everybody has A, B, C, D, and E? And then I'm just going to piece part together the way that I want those people to work. So, Char, this goes to the the concept of flex, meaning if I hire best athletes, they're good critical thinkers, they are, at least in theory, agile to problems. As problems change, as inputs and outputs change, they can kind of flow with it. If I hire specialists, they might be grounded in a certain skill set that, you know, is important on day one, but less important in day 20, if you will. So I, I, I do... I do see this role of a critical thinking general generalist as being more important, but then you also have this concept of I need to flex expertise rapidly. I Meaning it's 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 a scarce talent, likely. Mm-hmm. It's a talent that I want to be in highly competitive environments, so the talent is always evolving at pace with the market. Um, so there's I can't have a, a person who has that one talent and they can't learn from other people because they'll they'll go stale on me. So how are, how are CMOs thinking about this idea of I, I need to have a stable organism that's agile and I need to flex rapidly as, as needs change? Yeah, so I'll give you three different ideas that are um, based on various tolerance for uh, structure and stability versus newness and agility. So one idea is to have your basic organization and then a separate team that is focused on the forward-looking stuff. So this is like an innovation team, um, an experimental team, and they are deliberately ear to the ground looking at things that are coming along, but also looking at maybe new processes for the business. This is what BMW did with its DriveNow business. So they have this whole DriveNow thing, which is looking at stuff like driverless cars and uh, usage-based models instead of ownership-based models, things that the whole company couldn't look at uh, and still keep business as usual going. So that's one idea, is kind of dedicate some people to think about new models and what comes next while also just keeping the, the, the fires going with the way you've always worked. The second idea is to educate the people that you have so that they evolve their skills. Um, I talked to a very fun consulting company out of the Northwest. They, they called this uh, having organizational stowaways, where you hire people into your organization, and they are extremely useful at the time that you hire, but then they can't move. They can't adjust. They can't move into whatever is coming next. And so this is perhaps there are just some people that are good for a period of time, and then that's it, and you have to acknowledge that they've reached their expiration date. But it might also be that sometimes people just need a little bit of a catalyst. So Vanguard does this thing they, they call uh, whisper courses, where you can sign up every day to have a little tip sent into your inbox or into your mobile phone that's a little something about how to work that day. And it's in line with the, the corporate objectives for the organization and sort of what they're trying to get different teams to do. So you get just this little whisper of um, inspiration about how to work a little bit differently. 
Um, Starbucks does time-limited assignments where they rotate people through different teams, and you kind of earn your way into those into that option. And the whole idea is you get inspiration from sitting next to other people, from learning different ways of working, from understanding how the company works, um, and then you bring that back into your real job, and you work differently. You're smarter. You're more grounded. So we're seeing that happen a lot too. Um, and then the third idea is a completely different way of working, which is a more contractor model. And we're also seeing a lot of that. So you've got maybe your basic functions that are full-time, that are sort of the keep-the-lights-on kind of functions, but then you rotate through contractors, on-demand employees that are coming in, play a particular role, and then move on. And that model is quite popular, maybe because it's the easiest one for a CMO to stomach because they've, they've got experience working with agencies in that way. Um, so three different ways of sort of thinking about what you need today isn't what you're going to need tomorrow, and how do I foment a bit of fluidity while also maintaining structure that, you know, keeps, keeps me from having chaos on my hands. So Shar, you just described three different models for marketing organizations. As we look forward to let's say 2022 is there one that you envision to be to be dominant and you know folks need to transition to that particular model you know Jen I actually think we will continue to see all three mm-hmm. and actually perhaps some others as well um, I think that's because what makes an organization an, an organizational structure effective is not the structure itself it's the personalities and the communication within the structure. So said differently, it's about the people on the team. Mm -hmm. So it would be nice to say we've got a formulaic model that if everybody adopted, you know, that's what prescribes their success. Um, However, you know, one high-performing individual might might work really well even if a structure is poor. Um, You know, you just muscle through. And likewise, you could have a great structure but with people that can't work within that structure. So I think I think what we'll see is a gravitation toward the contractor model initially, um, just because that's easiest. You know, there are contractors available today. There's a lot of crowdsourcing type of expert places where you can tap into folks that could work with you on an hourly basis and solve an immediate problem. So I think that model becomes a very easy one for people to try, uh, where the other two are require some structural changes that would just be heavier to implement. So, um, you know, I say that's that's what we're going to see more common, but I wouldn't say that's necessarily the, quote, right answer. And as we look to these sort of evolving organizational structures, what, I mean, obviously there's budgeting considerations and then technology considerations to complement these new org models. So can we talk a little bit about how technology is playing a role here and then how spend is being allocated to those different technologies? Yeah, so we just finished some research trying to size that question. So thinking thinking about um, how much money is actually going into marketing technology and then related professional services. Um, we have sized in the past spend on media, which is an, its own interesting exercise around uh, just how media budgets are changing. And it's related because a lot of media budgets are now being earmarked toward technology. 
So I'll just give you kind of one thought. So overall, spend on marketing technology and services is a growth area. It's going to be about $122 billion market by 2022. The biggest ahas or the biggest factors that are driving a lot of that budget growth are that automation, so the ability to automate what today are are manual processes or make smarter decisions that today are made manually is sort of the driving force behind all of this. So there's an increased spend on tools that can help you do that, make better decisions, make faster decisions, make more decisions. Um, but there's also a, a, a driving force associated with more and more technologies that are helping to do that. So you might have a specialist technology that's really good at helping you do that for uh, mobile text messages. You might have another technology that's really good at helping you do that for your website. And as these technologies proliferate and you have 40 different technology relationships within your marketing organization, you are spending more than if you just had, you know, the one tool that you bought 15 years ago. So that's the kind of um, theme. And then there's some just interesting implications that are happening because of that related to changes in the services landscape, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but that, I would say, is the, is the backbone of what we found in the research. So I'm kind of intrigued by one of the things you said about expertise, Shar, which is, you know, when I think of the startup world, I, I think of them fully exploiting expertise as a service. You know, I might even have expertise as a service equal to CFO or where I don't, I don't have enough cash on hand to hire everybody, so I'll just pull from the market as I need it. You're sort of describing something different. Even for large firms, they might start moving towards expertise as a service and pulling these experts in for one, two, three hours at a pop which is different than the classic outsourcing model, which is, you know, large teams coming in, doing big things for long periods of time. Is that a change towards the, the way that the expert as a service market is built and where it goes and how it's used? I think we are at a period today where change happens so fast that the expertise you need is expiring. And so this idea of the, of the, contractor sort of economy is specifically set up to create that agility. Um, it's like when you were describing the ecosystem notion and how might we optimize which human resources we need, which technology resources we need. This is that same sort of idea. It's like today I need somebody who's really good at change management and I need somebody that's an expert at the Adobe Marketing Cloud and I need someone else who's really good with metrics okay, then in two weeks, I don't need that anymore. That's in place. Now I need somebody who's really good at building loyalty programs and um, tying together data, data systems, you know, data integration. So, so I think in order to be fast enough to stay in front of customer expectations, the, the shelf life of expertise is very, very short. Um, so I think the contractor models that we have today, I, I don't know how, how sort of short-term their projects are, but they're much, much better than the short-term projects of agency models that we've had in the past where, you know, you would essentially tap into a contractor model by working with an agency, but you were locked into a year or two-year-long agreement with that agency. This is the idea of I pay you on an hourly basis when I don't need you or you are not performing for me in the way that I need, then that's the end of that. And I have a pool of people 
that the, you know, digital online access has made very available to me. I have a pool of people that I can just go shop for if once, you know, once the thing is that you provide is uh, not what I need anymore. Yeah, it's an intriguing question because as offshore became prolific, it became increasingly clear that, that companies need to be really good at managing their offshore partner. Now it's almost like I'm going to have to start thinking about how does how do I bring forth a, a expert management? I'm not saying vendor management, but expert management that allows me to move people out very rapidly and efficiently, and handle that from a budgeting standpoint. To your point, have an ecosystem of people I can easily you know uh, tap into. I mean that's almost a skill set unto itself, a process unto itself. Oh, this is a, a fascinating future of work conversation that isn't just isolated to the marketing organization. But you think about like um, a number of forces, millennials in the workforce that have a very different expectation of what the work day should include. You think about um, the work from home movement or the remote worker movement where everybody wants the flexibility of being anywhere that they want to be. And frankly, the cost of living is so expensive in many metro areas that people are being driven driven to look for less expensive places to, to work, but still need the job opportunity of working uh, for the corporation that's in the urban area. Um, and, then, and then that, coupled with the stuff we've been talking about around customer expectations, the need to move very quickly, the use of technology to automate otherwise very manual processes, that all that stuff creates an environment which is, how should I create a work experience that allows for all of that to work productively. And I think most managers are very ill-equipped for that. You know, they're prepared for sort of putting people through the standard training, connecting with them in a regular check-in, bumping into people at the water cooler and having some ad hoc conversations there. They're not prepared for an environment where they maybe never see their employees and their employees are creating community by going to a Starbucks and working with the same people all day long um, in a Starbucks environment. That's their community instead of a community of teammates that you sit next to in an office. Um, so I think you're absolutely right. This is, a, this is a huge challenge for managers across the organization. And I think changing even the notion of what, is, what are qualifications for positions? You know, is it, is it a college degree or is it specific training in particular types of work um, or particular ways of working that actually signal the, the talent that's going to work in this, uh, in this future? The funny thing about these conversations is that you start with a rather simple premise, which things are changing, and the, the conversation unfolds, and you're like, wow, there's a lot of, there's a lot of moving pieces and parts. So, Shar, we've talked about value chains changing, the purpose of the company being rethought, the role of the CMO being recrafted, the use of technology being redone, the teams being more heterogeneous, the talent coming in from within and from outside and different models forming. So what does it mean to the, the leaders of the company and the CMO in particular, who doesn't have a blank sheet of paper, but actually has a, a, a living organization to work with now, to sort of confront all of these realities and do it at, its, at fast enough to make a difference for their company? So... I think, and not to be completely reductive, but I think the most important skill for a CMO uh, is to be comfortable being uncomfortable. 
And uh, I, I don't want to diminish the value of having all of these very specific hard skills around defining a brand, setting up what that brand experience feels like, managing technology relationships, data science. Like, let's just assume that those things are, are kind of um, given and you could be, you know, you could check them off. I think the, the soft skill, the intangible thing that's going to set a successful CMO against somebody that's going to fail is this comfortable being uncomfortable and being deliberately focused on trying to create some discomfort, like keeping things rolling, constantly reinventing, moving people into a different model so that they are fresh and stimulating. Um, and I think that's a very, uh, it's, it's either, it's, for some people, it's a very organic thing, um, but it can also be something that is learned. And I think that the, the smart CMO is one that that prepares to learn that and that that then will help them be better at managing workers in a new way, at thinking about switching out technology partners, at thinking about new kinds of budgeting models. You know, all that stuff is new and different and hard. And frankly, what we're talking about in terms of best practices today are not going to be the best practices in three years. And so this, the, you know, it's the, the thing that will give you staying power is acknowledging that that stuff is going to feel different and that you embrace that differentness. And in fact, you're putting in a, a, a few practices that are going to um, make it easy to adjust to the new stuff when it comes along. Char, this is a great conversation. Thank you so much for your time. Thanks for joining us. Good to be here. If you like what you heard today, please subscribe to Forrester's What It Means podcast on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, Stitcher, or TuneIn. And don't forget to leave us a review. To continue the conversation, follow Forrester on Twitter and LinkedIn. Thanks for listening.